and welcome back to the O3C podcast, coming to you from O3C Games. My name is Jonathan Dunn, and I am joined by my oldest friend, Chris Dow. Muscle rub. And we are going around the world in 80 games. Announcement! Announcement! I guess if we're sticking with the global jet-setting premise of this season of the show, this bit here is the equivalent of going through security. So please take out any liquids and electronics at this point, down the liquids, use your electronics to follow us on our social media platforms, (laughs) at O3C Games on pretty much everything. Follow, like, share, subscribe, all of the above. And also, just before you throw your phone into one of those uh, soulless grey trays to be zapped by x-rays or whatever happens head to our website o3c.games use the discord link to join our server and come join us there and now that you're through security get your passport out to present to us for checking please and by passport i mean money (laughs) (laughs) and by present to us i mean generously donate to us via our support page on our website through paypal or patreon and by us checking I, of course, mean issuing our thoroughly heartfelt thanks. And then we can give a big old kiss stamp on the passport page of your face. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hello and welcome to a brand new stop on the O3C tour of the world, travelling around the world in 80 games. And our destination for this month, the month of May, is Poland. Poland. Which brings the tally of countries I've travelled to in real life and on this show up to two. So that's quite nice. But I have actually been to Poland. Well done. Poland is a country with a quite extraordinary video game development scene. And I cannot wait to dive into that properly later. But it feels like a lot of water has passed under the bridge in the last month. I've been absurdly busy with work and also travelling home to Denmark for some family time. So I feel like I've barely caught up with you at all, Chris. I tell you what, do you want to give me your headlines of gaming activity from the past month? My headlines that I've chosen all uh, are isolated to one evening's worth of play. Friend of the show, Gene, came to stay for a weekend recently. Ah. And we spent a whole evening picking through a folder of PS1 disc images whilst drinking outrageously sweet home-mixed cocktails. Oh, boy. <laughs> and, and I thought for a, a bit of fun, it would be nice to give a micro-review of some of the best because we played an awful lot in little half-hour chunks. Lovely stuff. So, PlayStation 1 classics, here we go. Incredible Crisis. This is a bizarre narrative minigame collection that is scored by, and this isn't a joke, the Tokyo Scar Paradise Orchestra, and all of the games are themed around a Japanese salaryman forgetting his mother's birthday. <laughs> the best way to think of it, if you ever played Feel the Magic on the DS when that first came out. Oh, shit. Yeah. Similar in that it's got like a storyline, but it's just mini games. Yeah. And it's better than that because it doesn't ask you to rub rabbits, burn a hole in your touchscreen or blow into the microphone. Oh, so God. seven out of 10 for that one. <laughs> Next up. Charlie's Egg-cellent Adventure, a truly horrible looking and sounding flick screen adventure game that has design lifted straight from the ZX Spectrum, it feels like, except on top of that, we've got digitized sprite graphics of this horrible egg man, like as if it was from Donkey Kong Country, except disgusting. Oh no. One out of 10. Awful. I hated every moment of it. (laughs) Something a bit more me. Screaming Mad George's Paranoia Scape. (laughs) <laughs> and absolutely bananas like properly off the wall japanese exclusive first person pinball game 
what? that has you driving a a weird pinball flipper turret through the pipes and channels of a human body, destroying demons, and to a soundtrack that comes across as a less polished Ramstein. Jesus Christ, what's it called? It's called Screaming Mad George's Paranoia Escape. This is a wind up, right? <laughs> if like for description, it sounds like I'm making it up, but it is genuinely a real thing. Screaming Mad George, the Japanese artist and film director. Correct, yeah. Because back then, anyone could make a PlayStation 1 game. Yeah. 11 out of 10. It's great. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. After that, GTA London 1969, oh. an oft-forgotten expansion pack to the original top-down GTA that is set in London in the swinging 60s. If you've ever played the original game, it's more of the same, but it's still quite a lot of fun once you get over the on-foot character having to be controlled like a car, because you have a distinct accelerate and reverse button, whether you're in a car or on foot. Yeah. So, you know, decent fun. We played it for almost an hour, so we were quite enjoying it, but six out of ten. And then finally, a game just called Music, which is basically a simple drag-and-drop sequencer, a la EJ, that we used to use at school, that somehow works around the PlayStation 1's pretty paltry pool of RAM. And it allows you to make some serviceable club bangers from the comfort of your sofa. Oh, fair play. Did we produce gold at two in the morning? No. Did our neighbours enjoy the fruits of our labour? Probably also no. Uh, But I had a nice time. Uh, Five out of ten. (laughs) (laughs) And and my headline review is that the PlayStation 1, it's just really cool. Never owned one back in the day. And there is such a big library that, especially if you like strange, esoteric Japanese games, there are thousands to play yeah. quite literally thousands it's a mad old time i've just been seeing the uh tomb raider one to three remastered collection which mm. I, I assumed was going to be an absolute hot mess but it's not yeah uh speaking of games that also have tank controls but then yeah, you, you yeah. remember that everything was on the d-pad and it's like yeah. how do we do this this hasn't been done yet and a lot of a lot of stuff had to be tried and tested before we found just simply comfort yeah it's it's fascinating like playing old games like this how many First-person games in particular just do not have any semblance of order between releases. Yeah. So you'll have a game being like, well, the D-pad can go forwards and back. That kind of makes sense. Uh, Left and right can turn. Mm. And then someone else would go, no, left and right should strafe, but turn should be L2 and R2. (laughs) Like every every single controller is is just putting in the hours, like hard yards to work yeah. out something that eventually became industry standard. I've been playing Duke Nukem 3D on the Evercade. And, uh, it's quite hard work, isn't it? Can't do it. Can't do it. <laughs> cannot do it. Anyway, my headlines. Yes. Coming in hot off the back of last month's Netherlands episode, I decided to play all the Rusty Lake games. <laughs> <laughs> well, 16 of them at least, uh, because yeah. we, me and you still need to find time to play the co-op only instalment, which would then yes. bring my yeah. tally to a full complement of 17. I love them all. They're good, uh, they? I love, I love the world. I love the atmosphere. I love the puzzles. I heartily recommend them to any and all, as did, of course, you last month. If you want to know more details about the Rusty Lake games, listen to last month's episode and then jump into the discord because there's a few of us playing through them uh, on there as well not recommended to any and all is the freebie silent hill game that shadow dropped during yeah. sony's last state of play subtitled the short message not only was it not short enough it's two hour runtime should have been three hours shorter but the message <laughs> it had was <laughs> But the message itself it had was shit at best and deeply offensive at worst. 
as it essentially <laughs> fetishizes mental health disorders, self-harm and domestic abuse as mere sledgehammer precision tools to make a game scary. Doesn't even do that. I think my best appraisal of the game is that for a free game, it's a colossal waste of money. <laughs> Next headline. I played through Mortal Kombat 1, the oh, soft yeah. reboot of the series. I don't really like beat-em-up games, uh, but I do love the absurdly hilarious, over-the-top, gory action and stupidly fantastical lore of these games. Sometimes I just watch all the cutscene collections from the games on YouTube for a laugh. I enjoy them as a movie. Sometimes I watch the movies as a movie. It's a shame that some of the really fun additional content in the game, like uh, Homelander and Omni-Man, uh, those characters from The Boys and Invincible, they're behind paywalls. And they're just essentially, from what I can tell, they're just additional fighters to play as. There's not like storylines with them, with them like crossing over into this universe, which maybe would have been worth paying a few quid for. I will enjoy watching their silly fatalities on YouTube at some point, but it's fine. It's a Mortal Kombat game. My last headline, I decided to play through both Portal and Portal 2 for the first time in many, 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 many years. And it was, it was incredible. I'd totally forgotten 90% of the content of the game. I'd forgotten 100% of the puzzle solutions and also yeah. got more stupid, probably. And <laughs> like both games hold up miraculously well. The Switch ports have no right to be as good as they are. They play flawlessly, 60 frames per second, sharp and smooth as anything. Loading times are fine, but you sort of get used to SSD loading times after you've been yeah. playing on Steam Decks and PS5s and stuff. The second Portal game continues to be one of the very finest games ever made. Uh, it still makes me chuckle at many points with how brilliant the dialogue is. It even it makes me laugh when I crack a puzzle uh, just out of sheer satisfaction. Yeah. It still yeah. astounds me that Stephen Merchant was cast in it at that point in his career. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant, brilliant game. Shame on you for never having played it. Yeah, yeah. Back when you talked about it on the podcast, I bought a copy on the Xbox 360. And I now I probably own it. My Steam library as well. There's many ways I could approach it. I've got it on the Switch. I even bought that collection at some point. Just never played it. Never got around to it. Moving on to the big chunks. Chris, what uh, what have you put some sizable shit into? This take will be a bit late to the party because this game launched roughly when we recorded last month's episode. But after playing in dribs and drabs for the last month or so since launch, I can offer the semi-official O3C Games opinion that Power World, the game du jour on Steam, is absolutely fine. <laughs> There we go. There we go. Like, it's not the best thing ever, as some of the zeitgeist might suggest, but it's also definitely not the worst thing ever, which seems to be the contrarian line that sites like Eurogamer took yeah. around launch. It's an open world survival come monster collecting game. And the developers took the framework and the visual styling of Pokemon Arceus, I think mainly, the survival and crafting of games like Ark or Rust or Subnautica, the base building and factory automation of games like Factorium, even the sparse piano jingles of Breath of the Wild, and then just whisked it all up in a big pot. And the result is an early access game, Power World, and it's perfectly decent. Like, it's more polished than you'd expect in some areas. I'm sure it's more polished than Pokemon Violet or this Scarlet. This is it, this is it. But it's, it's still obviously far less polished than others, <laughs> you know? But yeah. because it's outwardly marked as a game that is in active development, you can't really complain too much. It's not like a, a yearly Pokemon game launching and falling to pieces. This is a smaller team making a game and, you know, kind of acknowledging 
bits don't work quite as we'd like them to, but hopefully in time they will. <laughs> and, you know, what can you say? Its success, I think, is not just because of its likeness to Pokemon, but rather because it uses the, the Pokemon analogues to put a really inviting or acceptable face on a whole range of genres that I'd otherwise just not be interested in at all. Yeah. And I think other people probably feel the same way. So as much as I like wandering about in Breath of the Wild or Tears of the Kingdom, which they are definitely notes of in Power World, I've never had the inclination or interest to dive into a proper hardcore survival sim like Ark. It just does not interest me. Yeah. And Power World kind of softens the edges by making roaming mobs a bit less dangerous and death is a bit less painful and the collecting and crafting and building is a bit more streamlined. So it's just a bit more approachable, a bit more inviting than other games in the genre. The factory automation stuff as well, I was a bit concerned about because the more I read it was like, no, this is a big deal in Power World. But you're just essentially putting your little guys to work not just in battle, but also in production servitude. But again, it's much closer to the kind of light, make a hundred of these to make 10 of these to produce one of these loop that something like Forager had. Yeah. So again, I liked Forager because it wasn't spreadsheety and it wasn't obtuse. And Power World, just like that, is quite open, quite welcoming. I think a lot has been made of the Pokemon with guns angle as well that the hype <laughs> trailers promised. But I've played it for like 15, 20 hours or so now across the last month or so. It hasn't really been the case. You know, yeah. I've, I've got a few of my pals that have their own kind of weaponry and things like that, but it's not quite, at least like the trailer's made out, where I had, or should have, a horde of Pokemon alikes holding AK-47s. <laughs> doesn't seem to work like that. And I've just, as with all these sort of games, I've enjoyed running about the world, and then when I hit certain skill tree upgrades, I've now been flying and gliding around the world on the backs of my Pokemon, not Pokemon. I've got uh, a little base from which to organise my production operations. I've try to fill out my Pokedex, not Pokedex. <laughs> but yeah, I haven't gone to war, like the trailers have suggested. And while certain creatures can accompany you in fights and they'll do their own bits and bobs and they'll kind of help you out in battle, it's hardly the kind of anime Call of Duty. <laughs> so if that's what you're after, it's, it's not that. It's not that. Instead, I just think it's a decent game that kind of amalgamates bits of a whole bunch of genres that I'd otherwise pretty much ignore. So it's nice. It's fine. It's not that expensive, really, in the grand scheme of things. Probably a soft recommend if it kind of appeals. Performance on the Steam Deck is a bit patchy, unless you opt for lowest of the low settings. But it is playable with a bit of tinkering. It's just not super smooth. But, you know, if you are someone like you that dealt with overall Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, oh God, <laughs> you'll probably be fine. You know, it's not going to be a 60 frames per second super smooth uh, kind of experience. But at least in its early access period, it's all right. I'd probably recommend it. You know, I've certainly enjoyed my time with it mostly. It is cynical, which is kind of like a big criticism of it in that it's drawing from very obvious inspirations, but it's still not cynical in the same way that Ed Sheeran cynically makes pop music, <laughs> you know? Because I think there's a level of effort here beyond take popular thing, add popular thing, and then make money, which is what Ed Sheeran has done pretty much his whole career once he had a bit of a platform. Yeah. I mean, if nothing else, I've been more drawn to its interlocking systems, no matter how familiar they may feel in isolation than most modern AAA Sony titles like we discussed last episode. Yeah. And, and again, maybe that's, maybe that's just me or maybe that's a really kind of damning praise or, or kind of criticism of one or the other. But it's interesting for me to, to note that I have no interest in playing Horizon. But when Power World popped up, I was like, yeah, give it a go. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't think it deserves its current billing as one of the most played Steam games of all time. I think that's that's a bit too far. But I think maybe the most interesting thing to come from it is 
probably that Nintendo and Game Freak have had to make a pretty sudden uh, realisation that it's actually quite hard first to claim infinitely and in perpetuity that you own the rights to concepts such as collecting monsters and animals with anime eyes. Yeah. You know, you know. so when they've kind of tried to say, oh, we, we, we've got the legal team on the case, it's like, for what, really? You know, and unless there is an outwardly stolen design, what what can you copyright in there? Yeah. And I think it's interesting as well because they've had so long to modernise Pokemon to give it, you know, time to breathe and evolve. And instead, they've driven their own flagship property into the ground, by all accounts. While still selling more than... It's mad, yeah. <laughs> well, this is the problem, isn't it? But, but maybe something like this might act as the wake-up call for kind of the Pokemon cash cow to take stock, spend a bit more time in the pasture, and, and just, like, sit back a little bit before its next mainline entry. Yeah. Because... Nintendo and Game Freak could do all this stuff better if they wanted to relift any of these elements back to their own property. They could take out the stuff that doesn't really work. They could smooth the edges of the stuff that almost works. They could polish it all up, wait a couple of years and be like, here's Arceus 2 and you're all going to love it because you like the first one and this is 100 times smoother and it's on the Switch 2 and everyone's flying around and it's running nice and smoothly. It's not a big job, really. And I'm kind of, I'm hopeful in a way that because this has done gangbusters, this really has like, captured the interest of millions that nintendo might go ah quite like a bit that pie again (laughs) yeah and it's right there it's right there for the taking so who knows eat the pie (laughs) just eat the pie just eat the bloody pie (laughs) just eat the bloody pie (laughs) (laughs) do you want to do you want to serve me up a big chunk of pie yeah i do do you remember many many episodes ago when you set me the challenge of playing cave noir on the game boy yeah yes yes good game a brilliant light years ahead of its time roguelike dungeon crawler that didn't even make it outside of japan yeah at the time i said this would be a perfect game for the play date Mm. and i clearly wasn't the only one to think that because under the castle has now been released on the play date catalog and it is utterly superb and is cave noir (laughs) (laughs) So Under the Castle takes the general premise of Cave Noir. It puts its own twist on it. You are presented with three different dungeon types offering a uniquely different challenge to complete, requiring very different strategies. Either you'll be tasked to defeat a set amount of enemies before the exit portal will spawn, or you'll have to collect a set amount of orbs to recover from the dungeon. The twist here is that you only have a limited amount of inventory slots for your weapons, armor and potions and spells and stuff and each orb will take up its own slot forcing you to sacrifice precious equipment to fulfill the quest and then you have the third dungeon where you have to free a set number of prisoners and to do that you need to collect keys from defeating enemies or finding them in chests and then hunting out the prisoners uh, to free which is a great mix of of both dungeon types really and the game works in a classic turn-based way with every square or tile of movement you make triggering enemies to make one piece of movement which may be patrolling on a certain path or moving randomly or shooting projectiles or casting spells you can move into enemies to attack them and this may have a small back and forth determining who comes out the victor you will take damage so you'll need to gear up accordingly finding the balance between a strong weapon a solid shield or some scrolls of various spells And the rooms and floors are randomly generated, but from a set of pre-designed tile sets. So it it always feels fresh, but also tightly designed too, with hidden paths and secrets to find in the dungeon walls. Every time you find a new piece of equipment, 
It gets added to the dungeon foyers for you to choose from before your next attempt. Ooh. And there's a really cool mix of, of things you can choose from, like weapons and armor with wildly different strategic abilities and health and mana potions if you're going off on a more offensive adventure. And you get to carefully choose your loadout depending on what objective you're trying to fulfill. And it's always exciting when you discover a new item to see how that could help complement a certain build that you're finding effective in a certain dungeon. But what of the crank? Let's not forget the crank, boys. Let's not. Turning your little handle allows you to disappear <laughs> up inside your magic hat and float invisibly around the map, crossing gaps in the floor and evading enemies. However, you only have a very limited amount of magic power to use this mechanic. So as with the rest of the game, you have to be very careful when you choose to use it. Every time you clear a level of the dungeon, it gets harder the next time. I'm not sure how high these levels go, but they continue to increase in size and difficulty for a lot of levels. And it's only after you reach a certain level on all of the dungeons that you then unlock the final boss, which is genuinely like a showstopper event, it feels like. <laughs> it's amazing what they do to combine all of the elements of the game into one sort of final gauntlet challenge uh, and even then, game isn't over because there are loads of pieces of equipment and items and stuff that you won't have unlocked until you reach some really deep levels of the dungeon. Even when you've unlocked everything, just keep challenging yourself to beat increasingly harder dungeons. And why wouldn't you? Because the gameplay is so, so, so good. Like, of the more typical game games on the playdate, Under the Castle is a real contender for the best play date game I've played. Whereas oh something like Core Fault is a phenomenal stab at creating like a vampire survivors like game on the play date and mostly succeeding. Yeah. Under the Castle is the sequel Cave Noir Deserved and it is extraordinarily good. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. If you own a play date, spend the ten pounds or whatever it is, spend the ten bucks, whatever whatever currency it may be, bucks or otherwise, and <laughs> have a bloody good time what else you played big chunk oh a few things i'm gonna list a few gaming things that i absolutely love that will bring us to the games i'm gonna talk about i love the steam deck wholeheartedly unreservedly for becoming pretty much the only gaming device i need to satiate any genre desire or any historical gaming interest in portable or docked big screen format it does it all I love emulation and its power to rejuvenate old games in a way that can make certain titles feel about as modern as anything released on contemporary platforms. I love RetroAchievement.com's community for endlessly adding value to older titles, encouraging me to revisit games I may have loved but ignored for a few years, pick up brand new titles, or just act as a place to hang out to discuss obscure ports and releases that were actually stone-cold classics, like the odd Time Warner version of Virtua Racing on the Saturn, really good. The GBA version of Doom, incredibly impressive. Oh, yeah. Or Donald Duck going quackers on the N64, which manages to be a really good Crash Bandicoot clone. I had a lot of fun playing. And finally, I love games directed by Tetsuya Mitsuguchi. Think Luminez, Tetris Effect, Res. These three all sit officially in my top 10 games of all time. And combining all of these loves together, I have spent so much of the last month replaying both the Dreamcast version of Res and the PSP version of Luminez via emulation on the Steam Deck marvelling at how good both can look when upscaled on a crisp OLED screen. And in the case of Res, being surprised how close it feels to its modern Infinite version, even on the OG Dreamcast release, because you can 
have it hacked to display in widescreen and it looks as good as the modern version does i won't talk too much about the games themselves because it feels like it would be retreading old ground like go back and listen to the corresponding episodes from the top 10 seasons of the podcast if you really want deep dives on either res or luminaires but despite not playing either for a little while both games remain right up there with my very 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 favorite games both deliver exactly what I want from video games, something that is visually and orally arresting, something that you can get better at, something that's addictive and replayable, but doesn't demand like massive, massive investment in terms of a huge story or a massive RPG or something like that. After a few weeks concerted play of both games, I am now on the home stretch of the combined achievement lists. I beat Luminez 100% a few days ago, and I'm just a few skill-based challenges away from mastering Res as well. Luminez took about 40 hours it's the only puzzle game that gets close to Tetris for me. It just does something to my brain that means once <laughs> I start playing, I find it borderline impossible to stop. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bizarre. Like even Tetris, I can pause and move away from. But Luminous, once I'm involved, if Georgia says, could you come and do this thing? It's like, no, <laughs> no, no, I shan't be doing that. <laughs> I'm not moving until this is done. For those that have never played it, it seems like it should be really simple. It's just... Square drops, each one is made up of four blocks. They can be one of two colours and you make new squares using the same colour. That's it. But for a new player going in cold, it can have a brutal difficulty curve. And people often boast about games being simple to pick up but tough to master and that's kind of the gold standard you're looking for. But I genuinely believe that for most people, Luminez is really tough to pick up and borderline impossible to master. (laughs) Like it takes such a time investment to really get it. But I can proudly say... I am very, very good at Luminous, probably better than I am at Tetris. And I've played both for thousands of hours collectively across different different formats. Even with 20 plus years of muscle memory, though, and experience with the franchise, I was unprepared for just how hard I'd find the game's ultimate achievement. In this, it was to max out the game's score counter in its standard challenge mode at 999,999 points, just one short of a million. You need to play at the very top of your game for two solid hours to hit this, just like unwavering full focus for two hours. Oh like in, in the early game, you can make a mistake. It's not really that much to fret over. But once you climb past, say, three quarters of a million, you, you feel like you're on the home stretch. Things are moving fast enough that a single wrong move can bring a run tumbling down within a few sweeps of the timeline, like literally <laughs> 60 seconds later, failed, go home. <laughs> And this challenge alone took 30 hours of attempts, like easily. Like I failed at 950,000. I failed at 960,000. The most painful one, I hit 990,000 points and then just fell apart. Uh, That was when Georgia was sat on the other side of the room. Her friend had come over. They were just having a nice chat and I was just sat there on the Steam Deck. And I just went, oh! (laughs) (laughs) Just just placed it on the table and just sat with my head in my hands. And then uh, Georgia's friend Mandy was like, Go and see him. (laughs) And Georgia was like, it's nothing important, really. (laughs) But I did it. I did it. Oh, gosh. (laughs) And it was great. (laughs) I mean, Res has been much softer. I'm still having a lovely time with it. I'm probably 15, maybe 20 or so hours into this one. It's just a really, a really comforting game for me. Yeah. And it's been an additional treat as this playthrough elicited one of my favorite ever game reviews from Georgia, too, on anything I've played. She walked into the room. I was, I was midway through a run in res. You've got the techno soundtrack blaring. There's colourful lights bouncing all over the walls of the room. And she remarked, if you weren't holding the controller, I would have just assumed you were watching a screensaver. <laughs> and, and as a review of the general kind of look and feel of res, I think that's pretty apt. Yeah. 
You know, Res is a game, I think, honestly, that you could believe was released last week, such as its kind of timeless visual design. Mm. You know, it's it's it wasn't of its time, and therefore it can never be of any time. <laughs> you know, but it's great. And my recommendations then for listeners, in order of importance, number one, if you don't own one, go and beg, borrow, or steal to purchase a Steam Deck. Because if, if you enjoy games in any capacity, this is like a one-stop shop with a bit of work. It's just been a daily joy to own and play. One stop shop that can't be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, please find a way to play Res, whether in its Dreamcast mm. or PS2 or Xbox 360 or PS4 or PS5 or Steam housing. It's just, it's so good. And as much as I put Tetris Effect up in my number one spot and it knocked Res down when we did our addendum season, when I play Res this regularly, I start thinking, oh, it could, it could be number one. <laughs> so they're, they're really closely tied. And three, if you're into difficult block-dropping puzzle games, give Luminous a genuine try, but be prepared in the same way if you decide to learn the guitar, you're going to have a bad time for a few hours before it starts to click. <laughs> like, it will sound like shit and your fingers will hurt. <laughs> so just, 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 you know, give it a chance. Lastly, this is kind of a, an additional one. Give Retro Achievements a peek if you want to spice up your retro gaming. If you're comfortable using emulators, it's just it's become such an astonishing project, really. It's a unified system now that is applied across multiple emulators for multiple platforms. It's all developed by distinct developers and teams. Every achievement set is just individual people in their bedroom going, I really like Luminez, and I think other people would like a reason to play it again. It's just really, really impressive. I love the community aspect. Like I've talked before about Clone Hero and what that community meant to that game. I remember discussing with Minty about like Doom mods and things like that. I just love when people take games and make them a community thing themselves. Yeah. And it's just great. I've had such a nice time with it. So the big game that I played last month, apart from all those other big games, was the first real 2024 release that I was anticipating, which was Prince of Persia, The Lost Crown. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot. I totally forgot. Yeah. A fresh take return to the series, presenting the game as a 2D action adventure metroidvania stuffed with puzzles, platforms and silly bosses. The good news is that it is a really, really good game. The bad news is that as far as 2D action-adventure metroidvania stuffed with puzzles, platforms, and silly bosses go, the bar is exceptionally high. Yeah. I remember a teacher friend of mine telling me that he changes his marking strategy when marking essays, depending on how advanced the student is. Yeah. Like, for most students, he's going through marking up all the things they get right, all the, the boxes they check off on the marking criteria. But for some who he always had full confidence that they'd hand in something, you know, excellent, he'd be like, well, let's just start at full marks and work backwards. I'm just going to dock marks for the rare errors or omissions that yeah. those students might make. And it's like that here with a modern Metroidvania. When you've got some of the very, very best examples of the medium sat in that genre, you're always going to be comparing a new one to the apex of the subgenre. So for Prince of Persia, The Lost Crown, I start at Eterna Noctis, Hollow Knight, Metroid Dread, Ori and the Blind Forest, and I knock marks off where the game falls short. Yeah. Which admittedly means I felt more negative about this game than most people who were coming to the genre more freshly. Because objectively, if you reviewed this game in a vacuum, you'd struggle to breathe. <laughs> That's so stupid. <laughs> You'd still have a better time than playing Silent Hill, The Short Message. Yeah. But if you remove comparison as a reviewing tool, this game is a really good 8 out of 10 game. 
because they do so many things right with the game. The combat is really satisfying with some cool upgrade trees and special abilities to unlock to augment your fighting prowess. Lots of combos and things like that to master as well. The general platforming is fun, although not hugely challenging, but it will certainly test you if you're trying to get some of like the harder collectibles. Although annoyingly, a lot of those collectibles are just special coins that you can uh, use to buy and upgrade various abilities. But you can also buy the coins themselves with much more easily obtainable currency. So it yeah. kind of removes a lot of the inclination to try and get them because their worth is generally quite low, even though it is fun to do the challenge for the sake of, you know, doing the challenge. But it would have been nice to have the reward, have a small modicum of premia about it. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what a cunt <laughs> speaking of abilities there are some cool mechanics in Prince of Persia The Lost Crown that I haven't seen in games before like creating a shadow version of yourself which will remain in place allowing you to teleport back to it it's great in puzzle solving but also really good in combat too because if you say charge a big sword swing attack and create a shadow version of yourself that will stay charged with your shadow until you zip back and unleash it, uh, allowing you to like do a, a nice timed or double powered sword thing. A million miles away from Braid. No, you're, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. One of the powers in that is similar, isn't it? You, you kind of yeah. have to bounce off yourself and things like that to, to kind of get to platforms. I can't remember. I haven't played it for yeah. many, many years now. No, that's a, it's a really, really good comparison point, actually, because there, there's another... Uh, another mechanic, which is a similar sort of thing with a shadow version of yourself, is actually just like, feels like it's straight out of Braid. Now I think about <laughs> it, there's these really, really fun puzzle rooms where you basically create shadow versions of yourself um, and you have to sort of run and do a certain action and path with one of them. And then you go back and your shadow version does that whilst you do another one. And you basically, it's basically essentially, uh, essentially forces you to do like two, three or like four player co-op by yourself, yeah. carefully anticipating yeah. your future self's path. That's cool. I'd say those those bits were probably the highlight of the game for me because they yeah. were the thing doing something, you know, what I thought was <laughs> most different, but Cunt. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Pissed on yeah. my bonfire. Yeah. There are other abilities that feel like they've, again, it's probably just seen what other games have done and try to do it like what Eterna Noctis does. Do like a rough copy of it whilst making it enough of a change to avoid being sued. Although like yeah, appreciate the idea of like firing an arrow and being able to teleport to it like you do in Eterna Noctis. It's not like earth-shakingly original. The way it's deployed in Eterna Noctis with like pinpoint precision is utterly extraordinary. And here it's just a bit woolly. It doesn't sort of have the zip required to make it like really, really cool and fun. But if you haven't played Eterna Noctis, you'll probably enjoy being able to teleport to your chakrams occasionally to solve a, a couple of puzzles or like get on the arse side of a boss. I mean, the game does have the now classic medallion mechanic system that was present in Hollow Knight. It's also featured in loads of games like Blue Fire or Eterna Noctis. You can basically equip various amulets or medallions or bits of twat or whatever that will slightly augment various mechanics, whether that's increasing uh, the power of certain attacks or movement mechanics or health boosts or other things. So you can mix and match those to help you get the edge over whatever environmental challenge you're facing. The writing and voice acting... In Prince of Persia, The Lost Crown 
is abysmal. <laughs> I zoned out almost immediately from the story when I met these characters, and you keep bumping into them as well, triggering more dialogue scenes that just weren't engaging. It's not even necessary. Like, you look at something like Ori in the Blind Forest, like, pretty much all of that story is told without words or lengthy cutscenes. And I cared more about the characters in that game than some of the members of my own family. Because <laughs> if the story and characters aren't going to be fizzing with intrigue, just leave them out. Yeah. Just just have it be a game to play. Like, if you can't tell a good story, stop slowing me down. Like, at least you're able to skip the dialogue scenes here uh, if, if you do get thoroughly fed up with their inconsequence. It definitely suffers from, like, Ubisoftitis. Yeah. Even though this game comes from the strand of Ubisoft responsible for delights such as Rayman Origins, Rayman Legends, it definitely feels like some Assassin's Creed's devs have snuck into the office to pepper the game with boring collectibles and nuggets of bullshit lore loosely based on history. The art style in Prince of Persia The Lost Crown isn't great. I see what they're doing with it, and it's fine in principle, but it's not helped by the fact that there's also a sizable downgrade in visuals when it comes to the ambient lighting and textures on the Switch port. Yeah, I mean, the game does at least run at a fairly consistent 60 frames per second, but I don't know, it's a pretty ugly looking game. It looks, I mean, it looks more like a GameCube game uh, at times than anything more current. And it's, yeah, I don't know. I haven't looked at videos of it running on like the PS5, so I'm not really too sure how much better it does look. But it's, it's not a looker, but it's fine because it never gets in the way of enjoying playing the game. There is, there is actually, there's an area of the game which is really, really cool. It's essentially a shipwreck in a thunderstorm that's frozen in time. And uh, I, I enjoyed exploring that a lot. And there was a couple of areas that were that, that, that were quite cool and quite atmospheric, but I don't know, they're, they're just... Oh, the game just sort of lacks that invitation to explore that you get with games that do have like more of a lush artistic aesthetic to it. Yeah. Even though, yeah, there are some nice and distinct areas in the game. They all sort of look a bit bland. So you're never champing at the bit to see what's in the next room. You know, what's the next area going to be? On the topic of exploration and wanting to explore, it doesn't help that the game is, is, is a bit of a clumsy fast travel system. You've got your save points, your, your bonfires, if you will. Uh, but your fast travel points are different to those. And whilst they'll probably be based near a magic tree save point, I, I was really hoping that at some point I'd unlock the ability just to travel between save points rather than fast travel points, because it, it started to become a real chore to like mop up all the collectibles and secrets and explore any sort of dead ends, especially in the late game. Because like a game like this, for me, it really relies on traversal being really fun to make yeah. me happy to go for 100% on it. And it's not, it's just not quite there. Like even something like the Spider-Man games, like especially like Spider-Man Two, I think isn't it's fine. It's it's like it's a bit it's a bit nothingy when it comes to everything else apart from the gameplay, which is so fun that I was happy to go and explore all of that stuff. I was more than happy with you know. Unfortunately, the music in Prince of Persia: The Lost Crown isn't much to write home about either. Oh, ding dong! This is another element that usually really encourages exploration you know i want to hear what beautiful themes are in the next areas or hear how pumping the next piece of boss music is it's not that the music is bad it's fine it's just not great like the other thing that disappointed me <laughs> about this game is that there were quite a few bugs and glitches present in the game at first i thought this was a side effect of me i actually got the game a few days early so i got it like about three or four days before its actual release because my pre-order just showed up yeah, and I thought, oh, maybe like the classic day one patch hasn't been released, 
but during my playtime of the game, like it received a fair few updates and it did address a few of like the glitches, but you really expect a degree of polish in these games, especially from like a really big developer. It was a shame that it didn't have that. Like I got stuck in a few walls, I glitched through some gaps and it, it really compromises your trust in the game when, you know, you're always trying to push the boundaries of what you can do and where you can go with the mechanics that the game gives you. You know, am I meant to have actually got through this wall? Uh, do I need an ability to get over it? Or yes. have I just broken the game? I don't know. The biggest criticism I can weigh against Prince of Persia The Lost Crown is that for everything this game does well, in all elements across the entire game, I can think of several examples of games that have done it better. We have yeah. been truly spoiled. Uh, at least, like I appreciate the game's ambition to break some new ground with some of its mechanics, but if you're not going to do something groundbreakingly different, you have to be able to measure up to the best in class. And there's never going to be a point in my life where I'd rather play this game again instead of replaying Hollow Knight, Metroid Dread, Ori and the Blind Forest, or Return of Noctis. Funny thing is, Still recommend this game because it's really, really good. (laughs) (laughs) Eight out of ten. Eight out of ten. If they continue to develop this new strand of the franchise in this way, I'll be keeping a good eye out for what comes next. I hope they push the boundaries a bit further next time because it could be it could be really, really good. It'd be great to have like a proper 2D Metroidvania with like a big studio budget behind it. You know, you look at something like Metroid Dread, which is just dripping in quality. If indie developers can can nail the genre the subgenre, then the big AAA companies really should be giving them a run for their money, literally. Or just or, or just give them their money. Yeah, that's the other if thing. If you can't give it? them a run for their money, give them your money. Yeah. That's it. Around the world in 80 games around up the air miles now we're on Last holiday month we were in the netherlands we actually just uh just what's it called in- interrailed yes yeah. Inter- we just yeah. we just interrailed a little bit south east to get to poland <laughs> i'm not even my geography's say. crap i i don't want to expose myself to be even crapper than your crap oh, it's really <laughs> so crap. i'll just say it's in a different direction from where we started and I, I know you can get there by rail. Do you want to know some <laughs> facts about Poland before we start? Yes, always yes. The world's biggest castle is in Poland, as is the biggest mammal in Europe, the European bison. Oh, it's a beast. Oh, big boy. Vodka was actually invented in Poland. Was it? Yeah. As were windscreen wipers, bulletproof vests, vitamins, and rubber condoms. <laughs> the greatest classical composer of all time, Chopin was Polish, yeah. as were many other Polish people. <laughs> <laughs> but also remember, you can only be known as a pole dancer if you are actually a Polish dancer. Otherwise, you should technically be known as a sparkling stripper. <laughs> 
would you like to hear about the games of Poland? Love to, Chris. Love to. I think we can argue that Poland, of the countries we've visited so far, may have the greatest contemporary games output. Mm. And, and we're not basing this on quality per se, but rather through the breadth of immediately recognisable games that can be attributed back to Polish developers. So without even needing to Google, a decent chunk of people would know that CD Projekt Red of Cyberpunk and The Witcher fame are Polish. A smaller handful would probably know that Techland, who are responsible for Dead Island, for Dying Light, for Call of Juarez, they're all Polish as well. Going a little bit off the beaten path, Bluber team, who are currently working on the upcoming Silent Hill 2 remake, and who were previously responsible for Layers of Fear, the Blair Witch game, and Observer, they're Polish. And outside of these bigger names, though, casting an eye over a list of notable games developed in Poland, there are so many AA and indie titles that I had no idea were developed in the country. So you've got simulation hits on the PC like House Flipper or Car Mechanic oh, yeah. Simulator, both Polish. Yeah. The PS2 3D platformer Cow the Kangaroo, which I remember, oh, I, yeah. think, I think my brother owned, <laughs> uh, it was from a Polish studio. Early entries in what we now call the boomer shooter genre, like Bulletstorm, Painkiller, the Shadow Warrior reboots, Project Warlock, all Polish developers. Indie titles like Book of Demons, Datura, Golf Peaks, Phantom Doctrine, McPixel, 911 Operator, which is always on sale in the eShop on the Switch. There's a whole range as well of blink and you'll miss them big publisher efforts that ended up straight in bargain bins months after release, like the Square Enix backed Outriders, the Nordic Games published Deadfall Adventures, the quite recent Focus Entertainment's Evil West, all Polish games that released to very little fanfare and didn't make much of a ripple, but they're big enough for me to have recognised all these names straight away just glancing over this list. The massive list as well, it barely scratches the surface of the modern games output of Poland, and that's to say nothing of early home computer efforts too on machines like the Commodore 64 or the ZX Spectrum. You know, at the time, Poland was having a pretty rough time, and yet games were still coming out and, and trickling out kind of under the the post-war communist curtain that existed in some part well into the 1980s. There was still a game scene going on. The incredibly powerful This War of Mine, Ooh, yeah. which I believe landed on your list. I can't remember where it ended up in your top 100 by uh, Warsaw Base 11-Bit Studios, also Polish developed. One other up-and-coming developer of Polish origin worth mentioning is One More Level Games, who are responsible for the fantastic but grueling Ghost Runner and its recent sequel. Now, am I right in thinking that you, Mr. I Eat Hard Games for Breakfast, done, might have some thoughts on this series? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But I was really, really pleased to see that the devs of Ghost Runner were a Polish company because I had a great time with the first game and I had the second one sat ready to go on my Steam Deck, just waiting for the opportunity to do just that and just that this was. <laughs> so the brief overview, Ghost Runner and Ghost Runner 2, they're very fast-paced, first-person action platform games. We've described them on here before as a sort of 3D Hotline Miami crossed with Super Meat Boy affair wrapped up in a cool cyberpunk aesthetic. You're armed with a sword, some shurikens, and several powers to help you zip around these stages, smelling crime, busting heads, um, and then back to the lab for some full penetration. And then <laughs> smell crime, you're back out again, bust some heads, back to the lab for some more full penetration. Smell crime, bust some heads, back to the lab. Smell crime, bust some heads, <laughs> penetration, lab, penetration, full penetration. And this goes on and on and back and forth for six or seven hours or so until the game just sort of ends. <laughs> now, the first game, 
was a much more stage or level based game with areas ranging from small and tight close quarters stuff or sort of intricate platforming to larger areas bustling with a range of different enemy types and you fail a lot like you die a lot you miss jumps and you miss grapples and you miss time blocks and parries and you catch the odd bullet which will always kill you in one hit and the game fortunately just like instant reloads the stage and sees you try try again in a blaze of, of, of blurry action Every so often you get a big boss fight in usually in multiple stages, but then test your skills and endurance a little more and you get upgrades and more powers and all sorts to take on the harder stages. Uh, but you can also then go back and beat the older stages to find secrets and collectibles and beat various challenges and time trials and stuff like that. Fortunately, all of the great stuff from Ghost Runner 1 is back in Ghost Runner 2, but it has also bulked the game out a lot more. I don't know if any of like the individual like combat stages or platforming stages are necessarily bigger or more complex, but there is now a lot more happening in between the various levels, which isn't altogether a better thing. Like you said the the other month about submerged hidden mm. depths expanding yeah. on submerged's core design, but ending up more diluting it than you know developing it. Or a film like The Raid where the first one was just this perfect 100 minutes of action. And then the second one came along and was an hour or so longer. All that hour was was some fairly mediocre story, uh, yeah. just fleshing out the wider crime syndicate stuff. And it, it didn't really do anything to improve the core of the first film. Like the action scenes in The Ray 2 were unbelievable, but then their sort of casing was a bit flabby and a bit, yeah. a bit cheap. So like the hub world, the deeper lore of this story in Ghost Runner 2, it just slows me down getting just into the meat of the game. Even though it's it's fine to have this lab that you do return to for some full penetration and then you manage your upgrades and you chat with some of these folks. But I, I just didn't really care about any of them. I just want to get back out there to bust some heads to the fast paced action, you know, get just back into that rhythm because like the rhythm of this game is where the real hypnotic joy is yeah and breaking that is is always a little jarring be like if if you had to like pause your game every like five minutes in your like two hour lumines run <laughs> yeah you can't you can't build up ahead of steam in that can you, you yeah just, exactly you lose the plot i think they've obviously felt the pressure to develop the game and the world into something that can be I don't know, maybe sustained for future entries or or just simply, all right, got to go bigger and better, bigger and better, bigger and better. Whereas something like Portal and Portal 2, like they, they took a long time to develop, to, to really justify the expansion of that world. And this feels more like a sort of halfway point, like a 1.5 sequel than like a fully fledged, yeah. fully realized, more open world take on this first game. The new main mechanic that's introduced in Ghost Runner 2 is the motorbike that you get. And you now have some high-speed action chase sequences, which also feature some platforming and combat and some cool physics stuff that sees you using your speed to ride up walls and twist the world upside down. And some of this action is is really, really thrilling. Like Especially there's this one boss fight that you do on the bike, and it is, it's a hell of a spectacle. And I, I mean, I was playing this on the Steam Deck OLED, uh, which, to be fair, like holds the game up pretty well, given the speed of which everything is happening at. Yeah. I'd be fine if Ghost Runner 2 had these motorbike sections as the more level-based activities or the boss fights. But then there's also just some riding about to get to level stuff, which isn't quite as fun as it could be. Like, there are some like obvious paths to follow, and it's quite cool zipping about the wasteland and popping wheelies over the remains of motorways and buildings and 
finding a few ramps and, and things like that. And you can sort of vault off your bike to reach some higher areas and then grapple back to your bike and carry on. But it, it never really feels truly fluid in the way that traversal feels in the rest of the game. But like I said, like the core of the game is there and really strong and there's really fun mechanics and a fair few new ones thrown into this game too, which, you know, spices things up. Some work better than others, but those might be developed more in DLC or in Ghost Runner 3. But I get the feeling that they've sort of just been slamming content out. Like Ghost Runner 1 came out, then DLC came out, and then Ghost Runner 2 came out. And now there's a DLC roadmap for that. I think they just need to stop, take stock, and really consider what's going to work You know, in a bigger, more fully realised game. Like This game has the feel of a game that has been developed for ps4 and ps5 or you know sort of with the last generation in mind because it feels quite hamstrung by some of those design choices maybe but this game is actually just exclusive to this current generation but it doesn't really feel like they've they've really lent into what this you know new sort of technical generation can offer i mean i'm sure they're going to develop more because the game got good reviews sold well there's no reason why you know they won't make more but i hope they yeah they maybe look to take it in a different direction or i don't know if there is if there is a good sort of like halfway point between like the fast-paced action and then sort of more open world stuff if you did want to sort of broaden it out but it's not quite there it's not quite there but it could be i think there could be an incredible third part in the ghost runner trilogy the other thing which i haven't had a chance to try out yet is a mode in this game called rogue runner oh you love a roguelike i i love a roguelike it is a roguelike twist on the ghost runner formula it's meant to be absolutely brilliant and obviously because i am a rogueliker it's right up my cyber alley so apologies for not having coverage of that to report on uh but if it is as good as i've heard then it could be all i'm talking about uh, next month <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, I don't know what the DLC roadmap is, actually. I know there is stuff planned. There's a bunch of cosmetic packs and stuff like that. I never never played the, the DLC from the first one, which looks really, really cool. You sort of I play through like scenes from the game from the antagonist's point of view and with their sort of unique skill set. It's good. It's really, really good. But I don't know. It feels more like Ghost Runner Episode 2 than Ghost Runner 2, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's great, though. 8 out of 10. <laughs> a lot of 8 out of 10s today. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. No, there isn't. There isn't. Do you want to hear about a not 8 out of 10? Oh, no. What have you played? I will fill you in. So a developer that I deliberately ignored in my background section is a developer called Taeon. They were formed about 20 years ago in Krakow. And Taeon had a largely uneventful, although very fruitful, in terms of number of releases, at least, in their first 10 or so years as a studio. But they were mainly producing DS and Wii shovelware. And... It looks as if, on paper at least, they were kind of a paycheck-to-paycheck team that would just take on these small contracts and produce a lot of immediately forgettable titles that are largely aimed at kids. Who could forget classics like Crazy Chicken, Pirates 3D, or Hubert the Teddy Bear, Winter Games, or 1001 Crystal Mazes Collection, or Robot Rescue Revolution? But, Jonathan Dunn, for some reasons, their fortunes changed in 2014. And to add a bit of excitement, I'm going to jump forward to present day and work backwards to reveal that Taeon are responsible for both last year's Robocop Rogue City, which reviewed quite well, Cyberpunk, and 2019's Terminator Resistance, Cyberpunk, which again, reviewed pretty well, with audiences kind of acknowledging that each game had its flaws, but were generally pretty well-revered takes on iconic franchises. 
Now, I'm willing to go out on a limb here and say that without 2014's Rambo colon the video game, oh boy, Taeyeon would never have hit the main stage and would have remained in eShop Purgatory. And so, like you kind of alluded to, choosing a game to play this month, I did consider installing Cyberpunk. I bought a copy on the PlayStation 5. I was like, here we go. Big game time. <laughs> Didn't unwrap it. I looked at the shelf and thought, Witcher 3, still got that on the Switch. Could play a bit of that. Didn't bother. I considered going the real Dumbo route and playing something like Eminem's Kart Racer, which came out on the DS. And it has the exciting title, I found out, of lowest rated kart racing game, as per the hallowed pages of the Guinness World Records 2011 Gamers Edition. Goodness me. <laughs> Goodness me. So it might, have been, it might have been overtaken now by something like Garfield Kart, but at least at the time. But given Taylor's history and their connection to modern gaming's licensed game resurgence and revival, I think it, it had to be Rambo. <laughs> like, as soon as I saw it on the list, I was like, yes, please, that's a bit of me. It released originally for the 360, the PS3 and the PC. Of course, it was already in my Steam library <laughs> from years ago. Never had played it before, though. Rambo the video game lets you play through the rough plot points of the first three Sylvester Stallone Rambo films because the fourth film, which had come out at the time, was a different production studio. They didn't have the rights, so it doesn't appear. And it tries to be as authentic as possible, but the audio is cut from the movies like one of the earlier Lego games. Oh, God. And the sound mixing appears to have been done in a toilet. <laughs> it's really bad. The character models are very recognisable. You know who you're looking at, but they're very wooden in movement, and they've got kind of that Vaseline shine that was the kind of the style of the time in the mid-2010s. The game takes massive liberties with the source material as well to spice things up. Most notable in the surprisingly low on-screen body count of the first film. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone's seen it, it's literally maybe one, <laughs> you know, depending on how you want to slice it. But here, you, you are literally mowing down crowds of police with an assault rifle. Jesus Christ. <laughs> which, is, which is great fun, but perhaps not entirely in keeping with the actual narrative of First Blood, part one. <laughs> More confusing than any of this, though, the setup is so weird, like the way the game actually plays. So if you look at screenshots, you just assume that it's a first-person shooter. You know, most images will show the classic first-person perspective behind the gun. Enemies appear to be popping out of cover. It's Gears of War. It's Uncharted, whatever you want to say. But bizarrely, it's a fixed-perspective rail shooter like Time Crisis, but without a light gun. So what you're doing, you're just driving a cursor around the right stick, and it feels oh, that's awful, right. awful, even after a few hours of play. Multiple sensitivity tweaks... I was using the Steam input settings as well to be like, I can make this more granular, I can make this work, and I just could not. You're using the left stick then to pop up and down from your hidey hole, as if you'd be using like the pedal in a Time Crisis arcade machine. And just when you start to get the hang of the weird control scheme, the game decides to mix things up by having whole levels, which are just quick time events. <laughs> like just huge interactive cutscenes for very little reason. Oh no. And in those you've got, you know, perfect timing grants a smooth series of clips, a Rambo sliding and stinking from silent takedown to silent takedown. And a botched button press will make him knock into enemies and trip over obstacles like a burk. <laughs> like it's really stupid. And the pairing of a light gun shooter but not with these kind of forced QTEs is so odd for a game of this era. Yeah. Like, even if it was made on a, on a kind of reduced budget by a relatively inexperienced team, I don't know why they took it in this direction. And this cocktail, when appended to a massive film franchise, though, you know, admittedly one that wasn't hugely relevant at the time, is just even stranger. I really enjoyed sitting there playing and thinking, how and why did Rambo the video game get made? And who approached who to pitch it in the first place? And how did Taeon, who had only made 
fucking Hubert Bear goes to town or whatever get the gig at that stage? Why were they the ones pitching this at all? The team did make a series of games called Heavy Fire that preceded Rambo and looked kind of stylistically to follow a lot of that kind of fixed position arcade shooting gallery format. So maybe that was it. But with most of them performing pretty averagely or, or poorly in some cases, I just don't know why Taeon ended up making this game. It's impossible to answer any of the questions I've had, but I've had a genuinely great time playing this train wreck, as I always do. And, and just speaking out loud, like these sorts of thoughts out loud and thinking like, you know, as I blast a hundred identical sheriff model characters in a row. Yeah. Why? <laughs> but it's also, it's made me interested to play both the Terminator and Robocop games because I've, I've kind of been interested in them for a while because they're kind of like B tier licensed games. But I think they both sit on a similar kind of knife edge of the good slash bad paradigm. And that always gets me excited. I know it does. And, and uh, Rambo's janky busted approach makes me way more excited to pick them up, knowing that this was kind of the genesis of this weird trilogy that they've somehow put out. Last little aside that made me laugh. An hour into shooting uh, at first Vietnamese forces and then waging war against a, a town's police armada. Georgia looked up from clicking away at the Sims next to me and said, when are the boxing scenes? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Rambo That's the video great. game is a, is a bad licensed game that allowed a studio to pitch to make two better licensed games, none of which are Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think it was originally being developed to be an arcade game? Oh, maybe. But I mean, at that time, arcade games just weren't really being made either. No. So I'm ju- I'm just I'm genuinely really confused. It's such a weird out of time and out of step release, appended to a, a strange property for the time. Yeah, in so many ways. At that time as well, it was the end of the 360s lifespan, and licensed games were kind of dying. That was like the kind of end of that window where it was no longer yeah. commercially viable to be putting out tie-ins to things in the same way that it had been sort of ten years earlier on the GameCube and PS2 and Xbox. So there we go. That is that is Poland in two games that represent the entire history and culture of its people. Yep. Where are we going next? Do you want to know? Oh, yeah, because it's your choice. Lay it on me. It is my choice. It is my choice. Now, the temptation is to choose a destination with a joke that I've already got prepared. (laughs) And that is the case. It's not the case, actually. Oh, okay. We are heading to the opposite of old A-land. We're going to new Zealand. Oh, <laughs> I can't think off the top of my head of any New Zealand studios and games. So this would be exciting. So there we go. Poland, other games. Next month, we're going to New Zealand. We're really racking up the air miles then, aren't we? Here we, we go. Jeez, the big bucks. If you've enjoyed this episode, get involved. Go to our website, o3c.games. Click the Discord link. Come and chat with us. Find us on social media at O3C Games. Follow us, subscribe, retweet, tweet, X, TikTok, Bing Bong, who knows? <laughs> Do all those things yeah. and come back here same time next month. First of April, we'll be in New Zealand. Oh, it's going to be good. Whoop.